Are you looking to modernize your veterinary practice by offering virtual care to pet owners? Fortunately, there's an easy solution from the podcast sponsor, Medici. That's M-E-D-I-C-I. Medici is a telehealth solution built for veterinarians. I've made it easy to check out Medici with a link in the show notes, or you can head over to their website, medici.md, or call 512-967-6454 to learn more. Medici lets you text, call, and video chat with clients with their easy-to-use app. Send or receive images and videos of pets, stay VCPR compliant, and get paid, which is always a wonderful thing, for delivering convenient care right from your phone. Hi, this is Dr. Aaron Smiley, and I've offered telemedicine to my clients since I started. In 2017, I integrated paid telemedicine with Medici. Ready to go virtual? Visit Medici.md, that's M-E-D-I-C-I dot M-D, or call 512-967-6454 to learn more. And with that, here's the show. Hi, welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. Today, we have a slightly different radio show, and I'm really excited about what we have planned today. So Dan Routh is back, but we also have two other special guests, which is Jaden, Robert, and Ash. And I'm going to completely miss say your last name. So I'm going to let her give her last name here in a second. So Jaden and Ash are both veterinary medicine students. And basically, the concept and idea of today's radio show is just taking questions from their peers, send out a survey, and then they're going to kind of pose those to Dan and I. We'll walk through them. should be far too many questions for us to get through today. So if this is something you all enjoy and like, we'll certainly continue to do them. So again, feedback is always greatly important. Ash, do you want to introduce yourself, kind of tell a little about where you're at, what you're doing, and what the future holds? I'm a second-year veterinary student at Purdue College of Veterinary Medicine. I'm an international student from Mumbai, India, and after completing my bachelor's in animal sciences from Purdue University, I accepted my admission into veterinary school here. I hope to become a small animal veterinary surgeon, and in 10 years, I look forward to being a practice owner in the United States and in India. Currently, I represent Purdue's College of Vet Med as the president of the International Veterinary Student Association and as the marketing chair for the Veterinary Business Management Association that we know as VBMA. Also, I enjoy spending time on social media, so you can follow me at that brown doctor, and I also control the social media uh, for Purdue's College of Veterinary Medicine. Jade, you want to give a little bit of background on yourself? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thanks for having us on today. I know Ash and I are both excited to be involved in this project, so thank you. I am originally a farm kid from Kansas and was one of those that knew they wanted to be a vet even way back then. I went to undergrad at UC Berkeley, so other side of the country of where I'm currently at, which is Cornell. I'm going to be a third year in vet school starting this fall. So I currently intend to specialize in ophthalmology and I'm involved with a lot of stuff with that. But I also have found this interesting passion where business intersects with veterinary medicine. And I'm really passionate about educating myself and my peers to basically take ownership in our industry so we can be a part of all the important changes going on that our field is going to be facing in the next 10 years or so. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And any links to social media and different things of how to get in touch with Ash or Jaden, we'll certainly have those in the show notes. But I wanted to kind of pose the question of summer plans because I know your summer's got a little adjusted with COVID. What are you doing? What were you planning to do? And how's that changed? Absolutely. So I can start. First of all, normally in the summer, I work in Cornell's emergency room. 
and had some other research projects and stuff going on. But when COVID hit back in March, all of the clinical stuff in our area came to a halt. So a lot of students were in a very similar situation to me where we couldn't go in and get those experiences anymore. I was lucky enough to scramble and reach out to some people in my network, one of which includes Dr. Rob Trimble, who was actually on an episode of the podcast a few weeks ago. So now I am the intern for the Veterinary Entrepreneurship Academy this summer, and it has been nothing but a wonderful experience. So getting that was definitely a silver lining of COVID. Yeah, similar things happened for me, like it didn't go as I planned. And especially for me, because I'm an international student, it was a little more challenging. Because as you know, my parents live 10,000 miles away from me. And so it was very stressful as a 24 year old navigating to vet school, and then also trying to figure out how to go home. And eventually, those plans fell through. And I had to decide to stay here, you know, versus going back home, because as an international student, I could have got my visa revoked. So I did not want to take the risk after working so hard to get into vet school. And, you know, missing a year of vet school sounds terrible because we learned so much. So I decided to stay back, but it definitely did work out for the best because I started working on the research on osteoarthritis and working on my social media and doing this podcast. So things didn't go as bad as I thought. Yeah, we'll try to make the podcast one of the highlights of the summer. So I appreciate you <laughs> both again coming on and posing some different questions. So do you want to pick one of the preferred or favorite questions? Again, there's so many that are out there and toss it over and Dan, I'll let you take the first one unless you want to defer to me. Sure. So our first question submission is, what things should we be doing now as veterinary students or within our first years out of school to be financially secure down the road, aside from the basics like loan repayments and budgeting? All right. So I'll break this into two different categories. So as a vet student now, and then like you said, the first couple of years out, one that's going to be consistent across both of them is establishing an emergency fund so that I guess you could say that it might fall into budgeting. But that's just one thing I continually see even professionals 10, 15 years into their career, they just don't have one. And it's one of the easiest things you can do if you have a job that's paying the bills. Uh, it's establishing just a comfortable emergency fund so that you have cash on hand. Some of the smaller things I would say is starting the habits of paying yourself first, opening up retirement accounts and consistently increasing contributions to those, establishing the good habits at the start. But little things that get overlooked, again, it's not fun to talk about. Disability insurance, it's going to be relevant looking into all your benefits at work and actually applying to jobs based on not just the pay, but actually the benefits that come with the pay. But really taking a picture, not just at how much you're making or what hot stock you're buying on Robinhood. I know that's been a hot trend lately, but actually looking at actionable steps you can take that seem elementary, seem simple, but they are really important and they will make you more financially secure going down the road. Isaiah, do you have anything? You hit on a couple of them that I was thinking of. The two other ones that I would add is first and foremost, like Ash, you kind of mentioned that you want to be an owner. And so if you know that you want to be an owner versus maybe an associate for your entire life, I think the planning of thinking once you're out of school and even while you're in school should be a little bit different because you're not going to likely be saving into the traditional, like maybe you're not going to be putting as much into your 401k that you would if you were an associate because you're going to be saving up for a down payment to start a practice. So I think if you understand kind of what the vision is of wanting to become a veterinarian, what does that look like? And it can change and that's completely fine. You might get out and your first job really shows you, I don't ever want to do this. I want to be an associate. 
Maybe family dynamics have changed. You don't want that ownership stress. That's totally fine. You have to figure out what it is that you want to accomplish. So I think trying to understand that will really help guide a lot of decisions. And then the other thing is, again, Jane, you talked about what you want to specialize in. If there's CE or things that you can look at from a benefits from that initial job, what CE can you take to continue to reinvest in yourself? I always, and I've said this so many different times, you know, the best investment you can make is in yourself. Like your skill set is extremely valuable. Spent a long time getting it. A lot of blood, sweat, and tears, long hours. Invest back in yourself. And if someone else is going to help put the bill for CE or provide you those opportunities, make sure you think about that as well when you look at first jobs or once you're in that position to continue to reinvest in yourself, to set yourself up for the future. Awesome. That was really helpful. Okay. So my question is, actually, I'm asking you this question. So it's, so I love traveling and I've studied in four different countries, but that kind of seems impossible after getting into vet school with all the expenses that comes along with it. So can you recommend some ways of making study abroad more economically feasible? Because there's so many externships available, you know, in South Africa and Thailand, but it just comes with such a big, large financial commitment. So what would you recommend? The way that I would look at it, I think those experiences are going to be something that you retain for the rest of your life. And if it is something that you feel like is going to make you a better veterinarian, then you absolutely should continue to pursue that. And I don't want to be like the dream killer over here, but you shouldn't set yourself up and put yourself in a spot where you're going to jeopardize your financial future by going and doing something like that if it's really not going to be benefiting you longer term as a clinician. But with that said, depending on the specialization, depending on what school you go to, because there's a lot of different schools out there that have different specializations, that could be something that makes a ton of sense to be able to go and get that experience. I would never tell someone not to do it. I would just not, again, put yourself at risk for the future by doing that. And with COVID, we don't know what study abroad, like when travel will happen. I have a sister-in-law that's supposed to go on her honeymoon in later, well, yeah, in October. And she probably won't be able to go as of right now, because I think a lot of the travel from the United States to different countries is not they don't want us because we haven't done a good job at containing COVID. So I don't know. I don't think there's a perfect answer there, but that's the way that I would try to think about it is how much is it going to benefit you in the future versus what's the cost. But I think the memories that are made, it's hard to put a price tag on that. So I feel like I'm waffling back and forth, but I don't think there's a perfect answer for it. I think you answered it well, Isaiah, just that it's going to be a unique decision based on each person. For someone who maybe already has a lot of international experience, Maybe you say you've kind of checked that off for a couple of years and you just plan to go after veterinary school or after your specialty to where maybe you can establish some sort of professional program and you are actually running an externship for other students. And so that's something that you can bring that experience to other students down the road. For someone who's never done it and it is something high on their list. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be various ways. I know I've seen just with various mission groups, people who do various forms of crowdfunding, whether you agree with it or not, but getting people to try and support you on that journey outside of your own ability to fund it yourself. But again, yet yeah, weigh it against, does this benefit my career? Does this benefit me personally? There's no right answer. There's always going to be a personal decision that needs to be made. And sometimes that outweighs the professional. So you just need to make sure you look at both sides. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. And especially with the current situation, that seems like a better option to like focus on different things, especially like if you've traveled a lot. So thank you for that. One philosophy that I've heard some of my classmates share on this is they're like, well, I'm already so much in debt. What's a few more thousand dollars? How do you two feel about that philosophy? 
debt is a stressor. Money is a stressful topic for a lot of folks. And I think without getting like too far into the weeds, I think a lot of the challenges around like mental health and wellness within veterinary medicine comes down to sometimes feeling this crushing burden of debt. And to think about it, and I know that's like you're saying it kind of tongue in cheek, like, oh, what's a little bit more when I have, you know, $200,000 in debt, what's a couple more thousand? First of all, the, the debt itself is an investment in your future earning potential. And if you think about it, like your future earning potential could be in the millions and millions of dollars. Let's say it's, I've looked at it, it's like six and a half to seven and a half million dollars. So that's a pretty good investment. If you're going to be taking on more debt to just have a lifestyle decision and fun, it starts to change how I would think about it. And again, I get it. You only can maybe have these experiences at a certain time. If you want to have a family and do these other things, it's going to change what the world looks like in the future. So you're going to have to pay it back at some point. I actually just recorded a podcast all around student loan debt with Megan Landis. And you can check that out. I'm not sure at the time of recording this when it's going to be released. It may already be out or it may be coming out right after. But we talk about from a presidential perspective, some of the changes coming out there. What could student loans look like in the future? Could they all be forgiven? We don't know. You can't make plans that you're going to get all your loans just forgiven and not have to worry about them. So I think if you just try to make wise decisions and understand, is this a investment in myself or is this something that is more for fun? That's what I have, I guess. Dan? Yeah, I mean, I think you hit on it. It all comes down to, I would say, is it necessary now based on some more of those life experience type things of going with classmates or doing a certain program as a extern versus something that maybe you could do three years later that maybe you fund yourself, you know, to either join and it might even be just you're going as a clinician with a group of externs. You're not setting something up. You're just going and you're maybe one of the supervisors. But it's something that you paid for with cash instead of with maybe taking out extra student loans. At I think for next year, the federal graduate rates, I think 4.3. So yes, it's lower, but it's still 4.3 more percent on that money than it would be on cash in two or three years if you want to do it after the fact, after graduation. Again, there's no right answer, but you got to weigh it. Right. And I think that the fact that there is no right answer can be challenging for vet students because we go into school with this rigorous curriculum and you're expected to know it. And this is how it's done. And here we are supposed to make these life decisions with uncertainty and no right way to do it. So uh, this is actually a great segue to our next question, unless either of you guys had wanted to weigh in more on it. Keep going. Let's hear the next one. Okay. The next question was also a submitted one. It is, I am a second year veterinary student and I'm going to graduate with loans of over $150,000. It often scares me how much time I'm going to need to repay them. Do you think I should focus on repaying my loans or buying a house or a practice right out of vet school? I love this question. Dan, you go first. (laughs) So there's a lot to unpack with this and it all comes down to every person's situation. Are you married? Do you have kids? Do you plan on being an associate? Like that whole scenario Isaiah was talking about. Do you plan on owning a practice? Do you want to buy a practice? Do you want to start practice from scratch? All these different things you have to consider because it's all going to impact on when you would do each of those various goals. So if I were looking at this person, so they're going to graduate 150,000 plus. If they're going to be an associate, let's say they don't have any immediate goals for practice ownership, maybe in their first 10 years. They really want to learn and become a really good doctor in their 20s, early 30s, or just their first 10 years. And then they want to maybe focus on what the next stage will look like. For that person, 150000 it looks like a big number. But with student loans and really any type of debt, 
if you're at one to two times income, which that would fall into that category, you're probably better off, like they say in human med, living like a resident and paying that off as soon as possible. So that would likely mean refinancing to private loans and then paying off as quickly as possible. That may or may not be impacted by, do you have a spouse that also earns an income? Is that spouse a high earner, middle earner, low earner? So that can obviously impact that. If you're going to be trying to go right into practice, I know Isaiah, he works with these types of people all the time, but the fastest way to get that debt paid off is to buy into a practice and then set large regular payments to getting those student loans paid off very quickly. And then the buying the house part, that can be done as well. But it's just a matter of what is the goal of the house? Is it you want to buy a house because it's something that that's what you really enjoy? Is it something that you're being pressured and feel like you have to buy a house because you just haven't yet? And really unpacking each of those decisions. But if I were looking at the situation, if I plan on being an associate, I would say, let's pay this off as quick as possible because it's one to two times income. And that can be paid off at a comfortable level over maybe a standard 10-year repayment, or as well as you can maybe go shorter and pay it over maybe five to seven years. But if you're going and owning a practice or buying a practice, that could get even deeper of a conversation. But Isaiah, do you want to talk more about the owning the practice part? Yeah. First, I would say in the home piece, yeah, it's I think a lot of times generationally, baby boomers, I'll throw them under the bus a little bit because they do that sometimes to millennials and Gen Z. They view home ownership as like a status symbol, like you've made it when you owned a home. And to me, it's a lifestyle decision. So my wife and I, we have a home. We'll probably always have a home just because we want to have something that's ours and space and all these other things. But you don't have to. And the investment return, if you think about it again, if I have a dollar, what should I use it towards? A home usually isn't going to pay you back much. And right now, home prices are hot and people are selling homes and making money. You might hear that, but they don't factor in property taxes, the new roof, all that other stuff that goes into it and fixing it and the upkeep. Whereas if you're in an apartment and it's, hey, I'm spending $1,500 a month, you know it's $1,500 and that's it. Like you don't have to mow the grass, you don't have to fix anything, you call someone if anything's broke. So it's not necessarily an investment. It's a lifestyle choice. Like on average, since like way, way, way long ago in the 1800s to now, they've done like a research study. And this isn't buying a home on the beach in California, like the 60s or 70s, which has appreciated a ton. But the average return of owning a house is like one to one and a half percent, which is worse than inflation. So you're actually kind of losing money on doing that. Again, it's a lifestyle choice. I will own a home because that's what I want. That's what Isaiah and Emily want. They want to own a home. For us, it, sometimes it's not always making the decision based on what makes the most sense you know, in an Excel spreadsheet or from a bank account perspective. It's like the quality of life. The repaying the loans or the practice out of school. So let's say your loans are averaging 6%. Let's just say blended across at 6%. If you can buy a practice and it is a good practice, so there's qualifiers all over the place there. The average practice, if you look at what can a practice return to someone that's an owner, it is in the mid-teens. So let's call it 16%. Top-tier practices are in the mid-20s. Again, that depends. That's companion. If you're doing something specialty, it could be higher. Equine's a little lower. So you have to understand what you're buying. But even if it's equine, you're still going to be better off from a what's the best use of a dollar, best return would be to be an owner. And you don't have to be an owner and be the solo doctor being there six days a week and be chained to that practice. You can have it with partners. You have a small sliver of ownership and buy in over time. It is getting harder. I have conversations. I had a conversation this morning with someone that was working with sellers. So owners that are looking to sell and working with 
consolidators and what they're doing and packaging these together in the multiples. So the price that people are paying are as high as they've ever been right now, even after COVID. And the reason for that is veterinary medicine is very, very profitable. Your skill set is extremely valuable. So don't ever think that you're not worth whatever they pay you or other things like you're probably worth way more than what you're getting paid as an associate. Now that doesn't give you the right to demand certain things and be unreasonable. But if ownership is something that you want to do, I think ownership makes a ton of sense. And so I had Dr. Dan Markwalder on the podcast. I can't remember the number of the episode, shame on me, but I'll link to it in the show notes. And he talks all about that. And him and other veterinarians have kind of started an organization called the 7S Society. And they are all about talking about ownership. And I will talk to them blue in the face about how much of a benefit that can be. Lastly, $150,000 coming out with a degree, again, that can make you six and a half, seven and a half million dollars from earning potential. It's a great investment. Do not feel scared. You'll be totally fine. You can get a home loan. You can get a practice loan. You can get anything. So banks will still lend to you. You have a bunch of options out there. It's all going to be about initially coming out and getting used to being in a clinic and just being able to work and make sure you get fast enough and understand how to do things well. And you're going to have to manage people. There's so many different challenges that go into that. And if you're not ready, you can be an associate. And there's nothing wrong with going and getting on a income-based repayment plan and stretching it out over 20 or 25 years and making the payments, saving for that eventual tax bond that may or may not be there. Again, I'll reference the Megan Landis episode. We talk all about that. And I would really encourage you if the loans piece is scaring you to give that podcast a listen. But that would be my suggestion. So I would say if I had to rank them in order, what I would want to do, I would want to be an owner. I'd want to pay off my loans. Then I would buy a house. If you just want like, hey, do this, do this, do this. But again, it's all going to be a choice based on lifestyle. Okay, let me make it a little more challenging for you. So like I said, I want to specialize. <laughs> so how would you add this into it? Because there's a lot of conflicting opinions about it, you know, whether you should go into general practice or whether you should do an internship, because that takes like two to three years of your life more out of vet school. So that's a lot more financial commitment. And if I want to own a practice after that, what would you say? Like, what is the right part to do that? And real quick on that too, Ash, I think a big piece of it is we're already 26, 27 when we graduate vet school. So you add another three to four years on top of that to specialize. And then I think people start to feel I'm in my 30s and I don't own a home yet. So I think that I like hearing that you guys are saying it's not so bad to be the generation that doesn't own anything, but there still is a scary social pressure that we're running out of time, that we're late. I'm glad, Jaden, you said social pressure. Isaiah and I deal with this a lot in each of our businesses about investing, and everyone talks about benchmarks for investing. Am I doing as good as this benchmark? That benchmark is a completely different representation of essentially their life versus your life. And that's the thing. It happens a lot with keeping up with the Joneses. They're buying a house. How are they doing that? They're having kids. I haven't had kids. Everyone's always looking at other people, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. So you're talking about you know, a situation where maybe you want to specialize. So you're looking at a one-year internship. Then you're looking at a three- to four-year residency. And that's if you get in the first try on both of those. So you're looking at at least four years. And that might also involve a gap year doing research because a lot of residencies, they want to see research. So right there, maybe we're at five to six years of your life post vet school towards a specialty. If I were in that situation, and again, if you're doing that specialty, you're going to have to go to a university to get that board's specialty. You are five to six years towards public service loan forgiveness if you have loans that are eligible for public service loan forgiveness. So that is a qualifier. 
for some people that will work. In that situation, I would highly recommend looking into getting a some sort of associate professor role or research role or job at the university hospital for four years and finishing that 10-year period and getting your loans forgiven tax-free. That would be something I would highly recommend looking at for someone who's specializing that has a high student loan debt. That would be an avenue to look at. You don't have to. Again, if you have 150000 or so, 200000 honestly, by that time, but if you have a board specialty, you've increased your lifetime income expectancy. And so 200000 actually isn't as scary as it's maybe just as scary as 150 was for an associate coming out of school. So everything needs to be looked at for your specific situation. I talk a lot and Isaiah, you reference this with income-driven repayment plans. I love that people are learning about these, but I also don't want people to think it's a great idea just to kick the can down the road on their debt. Utilizing the tools that are out there that the government has given us for income-driven repayment plans, which works really well for people going into internships, residencies, or that are maybe taking rural positions to where maybe they're not earning as much in a bigger city. Those can be really well, and those can be great ways over pay or repay using that 20 to 25 year period to get loans forgiven. That said, don't leverage your loans and then living above your means in the meantime so that you're not actually ready to pay that tax bill in 20 years. It's very manageable, but it's something also that I don't want people just to say, oh, well, I'm doing this plan. It'll be fine. And then not continuing to follow up on it. I think everything that we're talking about, everybody needs to have their own written plan. And that's financial plan, professional goals, what you're shooting for. If you write down your goals, you write down your plan, you're that much more likely to achieve those and actually attack them. And with everything here, I think everyone just needs to always write them down. What are you going for? The goals can change and then reevaluate it from that point going forward. Well, I'm calling you guys when I need to do that then. <laughs> <laughs> I really like the conversations going on. One of the things I thought of, and again, this is so off, it's not a financially related topic at all, but like we talk about like social pressures and especially social media, like Instagram, you see the best 10% of everyone's life. So you always are measuring what you have going on and the struggles you may have with best moments of everyone else's life. And I think that does absolutely contribute to like questioning, am I doing the right stuff? And you start thinking like, I didn't do nearly as well as so-and-so because of this or that. And their situations are completely different. And there's so many people, and Dan can talk about this too. So many people that make a lot of money that live so far out of their means that are just up to their eyeballs in debt, but you would never know that based on what they put out as their social status image. And so don't get so caught up on what it looks like for other people. I mean, I see it too, and I can say it easier than it is for me to actually do, right? Because I see the same stuff. I follow friends or people that I know on Instagram too, and you see the same thing. The biggest thing that I've learned, and again, from an age perspective, we're all pretty close in age. So as someone that, I mean, I started my business, delayed gratification is so real, but it is extremely powerful. So if you can just continue to grind away at what it is that is important to you, so you have to love it, right? You have to really enjoy what it is. So if you want to go for a specialty, you want to be an owner, and you're willing to put in the time, the process has to be enjoyable. But the rewards and like the things that I know now and the things that I've seen based on what I was doing two years ago is massive. And it's like, what does the next two years look like? It's going to be completely different. Even the power of this podcast, like great example, is completely different from when I started it. So different. So different. The fact that Dan and I met because of a YouTube video that was published on Twitter is crazy. And then we've gotten to know each other so well from that. And the podcast is the reason that I've met 
both of you. So it's really amazing what happens there. So one of the things to think about too, while you're in school, while you meet people, networking is real and people want to work and help and support people that have the best intentions. So how can you continue to do that? And again, I know we're getting off the topic of repaying loans or buying a house or owning a practice, but if you build relationships and people know what you're looking for, that will come back around. And I think the easiest way to build relationships is to ask them, like, how can you help them? Regardless of the situation, you might think, hey, I'm a vet student. What can I do to help somebody? You absolutely can help somebody. Your frame of reference, your knowledge, your life perspective is going to be very different than someone else's from where they grew up, how they were raised, all these different things. So I would just really encourage that community aspect as well will be super powerful for you in the future. I love that. And it's such a time of opportunity in our lives. And what you were saying about just who you meet. When we met Isaiah, I think I sent you a thank you email for letting me sit on a call with you as an intern. And I said, let me know if you ever need student help. And here we are today, just because I didn't know I could help you at all. But it was great. Yeah, it's wild. All right, Ash, should we go to our next one? So my next question is a little serious, but I think it's an important topic to discuss. So with the high depression and suicide rates in our profession, what is the mental health space like once we graduate? Is there any awareness of this in most clinics or is it something that we talk about while we are just in school? I've had a lot of different conversations. It was one of the commitments that I made with the podcast was to try to do better at this specific topic because it is so massively important. And if you look at the suicide rates among female veterinarians, it's like three and a half to four times as likely for a female that's a veterinarian to commit suicide versus her counterpart that is doing anything else. And that to me is so troubling. And like, what leads to that? And there's not a perfect answer. So American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. I had Maggie Mortali on, it was in May, so I'm going to guess episode 35. I'll link to it. They've done some work with AVMA of trying to talk about some of the challenges and issues there. One of the big ones that we typically see, and this is the thing that stuck with me most from that conversation, is as a veterinarian, the makeup of the person that the career attracts is someone that's a giver. They want to help. They want to give to someone. They want to make a difference. And it's really hard for them to go and ask for help where they'll give so much of themselves to someone else to where they grind themselves to a point where they feel like there's no way that they can get back to where maybe they were when they graduated or where they were pre-vet school. And no matter the situation or where you're at, there's always someone that can help in having a conversation, having a true conversation, not just saying, hey, how are you? And you answer, oh, I'm good. How are you? Like having those connections and whoever your peers are now that you're going to stay connected with after school check on them, like be genuine about trying to stay connected and encourage them. Because you never know, like everyone's going to have days that suck and are hard and you don't really know. You wake up tomorrow and it's better. But I mean, depression is real. And I think that's something that as a society, we're realizing it's not just like, oh, have a better attitude and you'll be better. Like, no, there are certain people that are going to clinically need help, need medication, need things that will support them. And that doesn't mean that they're less apt to be a great professional or a great veterinarian. I think as a society, we're starting to come to terms with that better. I know I candidly have like old Isaiah way back in the day probably wouldn't have thought the same way that I do now just from what I've seen. And I think it's trying to have a community that cares and being involved in veterinary medicine in a community. So if you're in a certain area, I know like in Indiana, there's like IVMA, then there's the Central Indiana Veterinary Medical Association, but being tied into community and not isolating yourself, that will be a huge step. So don't get to the point where you can't talk to other peers in the industry about what's going on and finding a community. That could be on Facebook, that could be through organized communities, but just have some way of being able to connect and talk. So that 
is kind of a word vomit answer of just me talking about the different things in my head. But when I hear that, I completely agree. And I don't think we've quite gotten to the point where there's an answer. And again, I know going back to Jaden, your comment earlier, like you want an answer, like here's the issue, here's the prescription, it's solved. It's not quite that black and white. And that's hard to come to terms with. Yeah, I think it's getting better. There's still a lot of work to be done. There's thankfully been a big push over the last, obviously several years, but even just the last 12 months. I know Banfield launched a mental health initiative for all of their employees. I think it launched in January of this year. And it's actual coursework and seminars, and it's a benefit offered to their employees to actually go through training, but also they have resources for mental health within the company. I think there's going to be more and more of the aggregators, those big groups that are going to be offering those to their staff, their employees. But I think for vet students, this is particularly important to think about in your job search process. If you're going into private practice and it's a small private practice, this should be one of those things you need to consider when you're applying for a job and and asking questions in your interview about what is my day-to-day going to look like? Caseload, are you going to be there alone? Are you going to be in charge of things? Are you in charge of staff? What resources do you have in terms of benefits towards mental health, towards time off? Not to completely loop it in, but there are so many different reasons that cause depression, suicide. There's not one thing that ultimately leads somebody down the road. But thinking about vet med is an overwhelmingly female profession nowadays. And postpartum depression is something that is common in all women after pregnancy. Thinking about, okay, do I have maternity leave and what benefits are offered there just to handle postpartum situation, not just workplace or general reasons that might cause depression or ultimately suicide. So it's something that needs to be continued to be addressed. Like Isaiah said, community is one of the greatest things you can do. And if there isn't, bring one up, establish something, take control of your local vet med association and try to set up a community. And that could be for young vets coming out of school that work in the area. It could be for anybody that works in that VMA's territory. But Obviously, we can't speak to actually in the clinic. Just this is all from what we're hearing from other people. But the work is still definitely going to fall, unfortunately, on a lot of the associates that are in these practices. No, I totally agree. And there is a very big correlation between financial stability and mental health. So that definitely plays a big role in the lives of new veterinarians who are faced with so many different challenges. So I really appreciate it. And there are a lot more resources now, which we can reach out to. So I'm glad like this is a topic that people are not afraid to discuss anymore. And I like where it's going. I agree, Ash. And I think our community is becoming better connected. Like I think we are finding those niches to really connect with one another and have those small social bonds that are so important to literally our evolutionary biology of like being accepted as humans. So we're about getting close on time. So I'll try to transition to one that I feel like was related to what Dan was saying in terms of what you're looking for in jobs and everything. So we had a student write in, how is the job recruiting scene changing within the veterinary profession? What should I be doing to set myself apart? First, this is one of the things that I'm going to have a couple different people on from guests. I don't have them recorded yet, but I kind of talk to what I've heard thus far. But yeah, I think this is a huge topic to think about. Candidly, 
social media and having your own voice or style of how you can do it and learning how to engage on social media. Do you know how many practice owners today that are kind of up there in age have no idea how to promote or talk or leverage social media? how to look at what reviews are or just how to engage with people naturally on social media so it doesn't look forced or strange. Because again, we all will use different services to judge what restaurants we're going to go to, if we're going to go to a movie, all these different things. And veterinary medicine is very similar. If I move to a new city and I just got this nice job, how am I going to go, unless I know someone already in the city, what veterinary I'm going to go to? I'm going to go online. I'm going to look at their website. I'm going to go to their social media. I'm going to see what they have out there. I'm going to see their reviews. And so many different people don't even have an idea of what to do there or how to leverage technology. And so I think if you can start to understand what the practice of the future is going to look like, and there are so many different people doing a lot of good work in that space. Candidly, I think LinkedIn, there's so many good people that publish good content. I tell every single person that I know they need to follow Dr. Matt Saloy on LinkedIn. He publishes the best stuff, bar none. If you want to know what's going on in vet med, If you follow him and you see people that comment, he will show you a lot of good information. Again, that's his job. He's going to research the industry and publish data. I want to try to be one of those people that's sharing good content and asking where things are going. But again, I'll go back to like, there is such a strong demand from a consolidator private equity perspective because they look at veterinary medicine and it is extremely profitable as we talked about. And they know that the demand for pets and pet care is growing and it's growing at a strong rate. And that's not going to change as far as the demand for good veterinary care. So as far as like having a job and having a good career that's sustainable from a job perspective, it is absolutely going to be there. It's going to change and morph and adapt just like every other career. But the job market, again, this was pre-COVID, but I talked with Stacey Purcell, who's a recruiter in the space. There's never been a better time to be a veterinarian. And she's been doing it for 20 years. The benefits that are offered, the competitive pay, being able to push back and kind of say, I don't want to work these days or this night. There are people that are willing to bend. Again, that doesn't give you the right to demand the moon and stars, but you have probably more leverage than they really want to admit at times, just because if you're skilled and you can show an interview well, I think one of the big skills that anyone should have is just communication, like work on your communication of how you can explain something easily. I, as a non-DVM, have no idea what you're talking about when you use technical language. And I always revert that. So like if I'm having a conversation, we're talking about financial planning, I need to know that a lot of times there might be stuff that you don't understand. So I need to put it in layman's terms. So when you're talking to me, keep it simple, explain things or use reference points that I know. There's lots of different good resources or books of like selling such a dirty word, but it's not selling when you're making sure that the end patient is getting better care. But if you can explain why it's so important and what could happen if something doesn't get done, you're going to have more people say, yes, this needs to happen. And that's going to help you in your career. Yeah, I guess those are my, again, word vomit thoughts, career advice. Yeah, I would just think about diversifying you as a candidate away from just your skills as a doctor. That's probably the simplest way I can put it. And that's, like you said, I know, Ash, and you're working on this a lot is social media going that avenue. Practices are paying thousands and thousands of dollars to consultants to post really canned content on their social media pages. Different profession, but we have a dental client that she's a solo practitioner This is her third year in practice. She runs her social media herself. She gets on there. She posts unedited videos every day of just what's going on in the practice, updates for COVID, and she is blowing up. And it's all just from really authentic social media usage. No training, no nothing. It's just her being the doctor that she is and talking about what's going on and advocating for 
proper care and all the different things. And so that obviously would translate to vet med. But yeah, taking interest outside of that. And then on communication, practice talking about what you would do in an exam room with like your friends, your spouse, significant other. My wife just finished her small animal internship. That was one thing she said was probably one area that she wishes they had a little bit more help on was just really helping them through how to properly communicate. With an internship, you're going to be super busy. So they're really focused on teaching you to do good medicine first. And then if they have time for the others, they'll get to it. So it's going to be a little bit different based on what role you're in, but really focus on communication. Because if you can clearly explain it to somebody else, a really complex topic, you are going to be a really good doctor. And that also applies to working with staff. And so you're not only going to have to explain it to a client, but you also want to be able to explain directions clearly to your techs, your office managers, really anybody that you need help with and that you have to delegate to, it's only going to make you a better candidate. And then also just taking initiative, if anything, that you can from a managerial standpoint. Maybe you want to improve systems, you know, standard operating procedures within the hospital. Maybe you don't even have them. And so you're the first person that's going to document all of that. But taking interest in that in ways you can improve efficiency from marketing, from operations, from medicine, from business, those are only going to make you a more attractive candidate. And just to follow up on that, a couple different thoughts. Like if you're hearing the same questions from clients, record that content, push it out through social media, and then reference that, put it on your website and say, you know what, we actually recorded that. It's on the website. Or have just a simple, if it's a new client that walks in the door and you know that they have a certain pet, you could have a standardized, hey, they have a new puppy. These are the things that they need to think about. Send them proactive resources. Have something that's automated that can automatically go out. And you can do these things with technology very inexpensively. And that touch point is so huge in retention to make sure that they're going to come back and see you and see you as the trusted partner. But I know this is going to sound kind of bad again, because you think about medicine. I just you know medicine. I'm in school. That's all I'm taught. People buy from people. If you're a jerk, no one's going to come back and see you. You might be the smartest, best doctor won't ever come back and see you. I have a counterpart locally that his dog had cancer. And he asked me like, I need someone different. She's so rude. Every time I go in there, she might be the best doctor in the whole city. But he was asking, I need someone else. She's so rude. He's like, I know you work with vets. Who else would you recommend? So he's asking me for that recommendation. And then as a client, like I'm not going to know what good medicine is. I'm not going to have a good way to judge you versus someone else. And you know far more than I do. So don't get so nervous that going to come in and challenge you. You've had four years to learn this. This other person might have spent two minutes on Google in the waiting room trying to figure out what they want to ask. You have the knowledge. You're the expert. And as long as you continue to make sure that they know that, not that you're being overbearing on them, but just, hey, yeah, I might be young. I might look young, whatever. But I actually have a lot of knowledge and I went to school for this. And have confidence in yourself and your skill set. You'll be completely fine. Yeah, thank you for that. I think it's interesting that the skills you guys are highlighting are stuff that hasn't been traditionally focused on in the veterinary curriculum. But now I think that people are seeing the need for it. So I feel like it's coming up in the conversations about the direction the curriculum changes are going to be making in the future. Definitely. I think it's only going to apply more and more. I mean, I see it in our profession, you know, loosely with vet med, but it's getting less and less important about which school you went to and more about what you're bringing to the table outside of just your medicine and really your personality, because especially as aggregators and private equity are coming in, they really want to make sure they're hiring somebody that's going to be a good fit for their practice, not just getting the medicine done, but also for their other staff members, maybe a future business partner, 
or a current business partner. They're going to focus on those much more than did you graduate from a top three, top five, and really (laughs) down the road, that might look like, wow, you spent a lot more money for an education than maybe you had to. And so I would focus really on you developing yourself, developing those side skills much more so, especially for somebody who's maybe applying to vet schools, worrying about so much where you went to school. I totally agree. Now people are focusing on multilingualism and diversity, inclusion, and all these different things more than ever. Like people do not care about, you know, what your grades are because nobody's going to ask you your GPA once you start working. So (laughs) they're focusing on your soft skills and leadership and what you did in school. If you were just sitting with your books all day or were you, you know, part of organizations like VBMA and all these different cool organizations that we have. So I totally agree with you guys. Like soft skills are given more importance than now more than ever. So I totally agree. And if soft skills, leadership, communication, if those are all topics that are interesting, which it sounds like it are, we can either talk through it on a future episode, but I can also try to put together a good resource and post it on just like a blog post. Like, hey, here's good books or good podcasts or good things on that topic and just keep adding to them. So again, if that's something that's interesting, I love feedback on what the channels are, how you want to see that. But that's a good thought. And I think it would be beneficial. Yeah, we can put something together when Jaden's in VBMA, if I'm not wrong. And like, we can put some things like the resources that we get and we can share it on here and how it's helped and like share some case studies or stories. I think that would make an interesting talk. Absolutely. So we're close up on time. We didn't get through everything, which I knew before we hit record that we weren't going to. So we'll come back. We'll have more of these conversations again. Very, very appreciative of everyone's time. I think it's just a fun to get together, have conversations and hear other perspectives because I learned a lot just listening to you all offering perspective on what you see and how it looks because it's going to be different depending on, again, someone else's upbringing, what experiences they've had. Well, thank you for having us on. Yeah, thank you so much for this opportunity. I had a great time, you know, meeting all you guys. Yeah, take care. We will be back and talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to today's show. All comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should talk to your professional team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is the founder of ID Financial Planning and Wealth Management. Isaiah is a registered investment advisor in the state of Indiana. Dan Routh is employed by Old Peak Finance and is a registered investment advisor in the state of North Carolina. The biggest compliment you can give is to share this podcast with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is predominantly the platform that is how people listen to the show. If you have three minutes, love the show, head over to Apple Podcasts and give us an honest rating and review. That will help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can also subscribe via your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information and insights and have the ability for your voice to be heard, join the private Facebook group. You can search for the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll to the bottom section where it says about your host and click on the Facebook icon. Then I can let you join the group and would love to hear from you there. Thanks for listening. and I'll be talking again to you soon.